I've yet to do a podcast where I'm flying solo, but this is the first. And sometimes, you know, you you have to kind of do what you got to do when you're low on staff and friends and <laughs> volunteers. Uh, welcome to the uh, podcast, everybody. My name is Emilio Ramos. This is another episode of Christ and Kingdom. And today uh, I want to be going to be talking about a uh, a sermon that I delivered, a message really that I delivered at the Ark Encounter uh, for the pastor's conference with Ken Ham. The name of that message was entitled The Last Gospel. And obviously the title is meant to kind of provoke some uh, some intrigue because uh, even as Ken Ham told me, when you say the last gospel, you mean you believe in more than one? <laughs> and obviously I didn't know, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of what that means and why I think the last gospel is really important and something that we can kind of learn a lot from. But uh, I also want to uh, just take a moment and reflect on pastoral ministry. Uh, here in the last uh, few weeks or so, I have transitioned out of pastoral ministry and uh, kind of dedicating myself now to full-time uh, online uh, media and, of course, filmmaking and all of the things that we're doing at Red Grace Media in conjunction with AGTV, for example. Uh, and also, if you haven't yet, go to AGTV and make sure you check uh, the platform there because Red Grace Media has different... Uh, stuff that we've done there. Obviously, Unpopular is there. Uh, a series of, of teachings that I've done with, uh, or really produced, uh, featuring Lane Tipton, and then stuff that I've done myself on various topics you can find there on the AGTV streaming service. Just go to watchagtv.com, watchagtv.com. Uh, but as, you know, as I think about pastoral ministry, I uh, just want to take a moment and express my gratitude, uh, obviously, first and foremost, to the Lord for the uh, the opportunity and the grace and really the just how humbling it is to know that uh, God used me for, oh, I don't know, about 15, 16 years of pastoral ministry. And then, obviously, I've been in full-time ministry even prior to that. So, I mean, for a very big part of my life, I've done full-time ministry in some capacity or another, been on staff with a church. And, um, you know, I, there's there's nothing quite like pastoral ministry. And of course, the very, for, very first aspect of pastoral ministry is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. I've dedicated my life uh, to teaching God's Word, to teaching uh, biblical theology, to teaching reform theology, uh, and to expositing the Word of God in really what I would in, uh, sort of entitle uh, exegetical preaching. I know that ex- expository preaching is obviously uh, what we're dedicated to, but nowadays, if you think about it, there's a whole lot of things out there that are called expositional preaching that really are starting to kind of, expository preaching is starting to become a really big umbrella. So I've always liked to use the, 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 the language of exegetical preaching because I don't think there's a whole lot of wiggle room around the word exegesis. You're either doing exegesis or you're not doing exegesis. And that's, you know, that's always what I've tried to do. And uh, the Lord in His grace, you know, I began pastoring in 2007, full-time, in, uh, in, in Texas, in Fort Worth. Um, my wife and I lived in a small city in Keller, Texas, and uh, began preaching uh, through the Gospel of John. It took me about three and a half years 
uh, to get through the Gospel of John. And then from there, I preached uh, uh, all sorts of different books and uh, Galatians and Philippians, and, and uh, you know, I preached uh, uh, out of the Old Testament numerous psalms and uh, big portions of the Old Testament, like uh, the book of Hosea. Uh, even though I didn't finish that book, um, got pretty deep into that book, and the exposure to God's Word is just—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's almost indescribable. I mean, you can't really grasp, or you can't really, or even articulate how incredible it is week after week to be in the Word of God, and then even beyond that, to be in the Word of God and to craft a sermon, to structure a sermon and to prepare a sermon for the people of God, um, it, it really is the highest privilege that anyone can have uh, in the church and in the ministry. There is no other ministry, in my opinion, that is more significant, uh, that's more important, that, that is more critical than the person who is going to stand before the, behind the pulpit and deliver the Word of God uh, before the people of God in the Church of God, that, that will always remain uh, the greatest uh, calling and the greatest office uh, for the Church today. And I would say, even right now, the greatest need in the Church remains good pastors, good churches, uh, you know, uh, evangelistic churches, expository-type churches, and, of course, Reformed churches that will, uh, that will stand upon the truths of Reformed theology, and uh, just to have a, a, a significant portion of my life dedicated to that ministry is something that I will never forget, something that I will always treasure, uh, and it seems as if right now God has me focused on something else, <laughs> And it's kind of remarkable that I'm doing media, that I'm doing filmmaking, that I'm partnering with people like AGTV and others, other ministries really, uh, and other uh, uh, gifted people in the in the in the church to produce solid uh, uh, theological content uh, with the you know with the edge or you know with through the medium of. Of, of cinematic media and things like that. It's just, I, I'm hoping to really, really develop that now and, and, and hope that I can continue to just bring uh, just fresh content and new content and, and, and keep uh, propagating uh, theology in that way. And whether it's evangelistic or apologetics or it's uh, Reformed theology or biblical theology or eschatology, whatever it will be, um, I'm just, my prayer is that it will be useful for the greater church. So in a sense, you know, I feel that the Lord has called me into a broader uh, ministry, a broader scope uh, with a greater audience, um, and hoping that we will continue to do good uh, in that area. And so, um, you know, obviously throughout the years, I've had the privilege to be in the church uh, in this pastoral role, and uh, just all of the families over the years uh, that made that possible, I am eternally grateful for them. Uh, I, I am forever thankful that men and women throughout the years uh, rose up to the occasion to serve, to make my pastoral ministry possible, and it's just, I count it as nothing but a privilege to have uh, to have you know the opportunity to have worked with people like that uh, in the church, and so uh, that will always always have a special place 
in my heart with all the ups and downs, with all the trials and tribulations, with all the heartaches. You know, being a pastor, maybe perhaps you're thinking about going into the pastoral ministry yourself. You know, being a pastor is the greatest thing that you will ever do. It's also the hardest by far. It is also the hardest thing that you will ever do to have to be the person who is in charge of shepherding the people of God, uh, to be in charge of, of uh, the counseling, the discipling, the shepherding, the leading, uh, and the guiding of a church and conducting worship every single Lord's Day. Uh, it is, it, you know, that, you know, it is, it is absolutely glorious, but it is also very, very trying, and uh, it, it requires of the minister a, a total commitment uh, to that calling and a commitment to the Word of God and, and uh, an unwavering devotion uh, to, uh, to studying the Word, to applying the Word, and applying yourself to the Word of God, right? As Scripture says, that we would be able to rightly divide the Word of truth, so that we will not be ashamed, and to conduct our ministry in the sight of God, and and uh, and just remarkable uh, that the Lord uses such unworthy creatures uh, like me and others uh, to be His mouthpiece, as it were, to be a spokesperson, an ambassador for His name, and to 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 stand beneath His word and to lift up Christ week after week in the midst of the congregation is just a like again like a, a the privilege is inestimable, and the responsibility, the weight, the accountability is also inestimable, and it's a very weighty thing, weighty thing to do, but just know that as you go into pastoral ministry, what awaits you are, are the, the, the trials and the triumphs, right? The, uh, the good days and the hard days, and so Scripture tells us to preach the Word of God in season and out, essentially when it's convenient and when it's not. You know, there are times as a pastor when you come to church and you just cannot wait to get behind the pulpit and deliver the Word of God. And there are other times when you get to church and the last thing that you want to do is get get behind the pulpit and deliver the Word of God. I mean, I can't tell you how many sermons I have had to preach through uh, through a flu, through sickness, through you know strep throat or whatever. And you just, as I used to say in the ministry, you know, you 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 crawl in, you don't call in, and uh, so you know um, that that's a part of my life that I'll never forget. Um, not quite over it yet. Uh, I don't think you can get over in a few weeks or in a month or in a couple months, even uh, having done something over and over and over for sixteen years, and and uh, and then just not do it anymore. So. Uh, but, you know, I know that God is faithful and that God will provide and that God will direct. And God has already, just even in, uh, just as, as this is uh, fresh and, and just happening in my own life, already he has already made uh, uh, certain things clear to me. Certain doors have already opened up. Opportunities have already been presented uh, to do the kind of ministry that I feel as if the Lord has for me now uh, and to kind of advance the cause of biblical apologetics and biblical theology and reformed theology in different venues. So I'm really excited excited about that. I'm excited to partner with different ministries uh, to do that very thing. And also, uh, I'm also excited to take up the, 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 um, uh, the job of writing, really honestly, finishing book projects that I've had in the works now for some years. Uh, you know, because when you're doing expository preaching every week, 
especially exegetical preaching, you know, the the your time is really limited and you're you're stretched really thin as you're trying to kind of divvy up your time between the commentaries, sermon preparation, uh, you know, issues in the church, counseling, your family, uh, you know, all kinds of other stuff going on, and then anything you do in addition to that, like with Red Grace Media, you know, everything kind of pulls you in different directions, and you have to really, really manage your time. So dedicating yourself to, like, writing a book, for example, becomes very, very difficult. So uh, excited to have the opportunity to really focus on that, and right now I'm actually working on a book. Uh, that I hope to be done in, oh, I don't know, maybe three, four months. Uh, And I'm very excited about that. And uh, more will be trickling out regarding that very thing. So uh, we will have to just see what the Lord does here in the near future. I'm very excited about it all. Uh, uh, Let me just transition here for a moment and talk about uh, my time over at the Ark Encounter with Ken Ham and the different uh, speakers that were there. Uh, Joe Beakey uh, was there. Uh, there. Martin Isles was there from Australia, who's a good Reformed brother that's doing incredible things in a very, very difficult ministry environment in Australia where they have really become uh, oppressive and tyrannical and uh, oppressive to the church and really uh, persecuting uh, the church. They're, they, they're even, in, in many ways, they're beyond uh, where Canada is on on things like LGBT rights and stuff like that and how they try to censor you and cancel you and cancel culture is in full swing there in Canada and uh, in Australia. It's so bad that if you engage in any sort of rhetoric that could be taken as hate speech against um, you know those forms of sexuality, some of those things are uh, punishable for up to 10 years in prison for speaking directly against uh, let's say something like homosexuality. So uh, Martin Isles doing incredible work there. And so it was just a, a great, great time and certainly privileged uh, to be part of that. And so, uh, but I delivered a message entitled The Last Gospel. And the reason why I did that is because I focused on Revelation chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 6, all the way down to verse 12, this is the section where there are a series of angelic visions that are unleashed. And what drew me to this passage initially was that when you look at uh, this text, there is a reference to the gospel here. And as a matter of fact, it happens to be the very last time that the word euangelion, gospel, is mentioned uh, in the word of God. In, so it's Revelation uh, 14. Uh, verse 6, and in that sense, it is the last gospel. It's the last mention of the gospel in the Bible, but when you look at that gospel message, it doesn't really look like anything you know about the gospel. There's no reference to grace or forgiveness or mercy or the cross or the resurrection. It doesn't sound like anything you would say if you were trying to tell people about the gospel, and yet, This angel delivering this message uh, concerning the eternal gospel, his focus in this gospel above everything is the doctrine of the creator. So let me just read the text here, Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. 
Uh, and I'll read down to uh, verse 7. It says, And I saw another angel flying in the mid-heaven. Now, really quick, I'll comment on this, but the mid-heaven in the book of Revelation, as G.K. Beale has shown, when uh, the mid-heaven is mentioned, it's usually an indicator that we are coming very near to the parousia, to the second coming of Christ. So this is true eschatological language that we're looking at here. The angels flying in the mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, verse 7, and he said with a loud voice, fear God, here's the content of his gospel message, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And so again, the message of this angel regarding the the last gospel focuses directly upon the doctrine of the creator. Now, very um uh I guess what we could say is that you could easily entitle this passage a tale of three angels because that's really what it is. In verse uh, uh, 6, you have the angel there. In verse 8, you have another angel there. And in verse 9, you have yet another, a third one, it says. So three angels, a tale of three angels having three distinct messages concerning this time of parousia and judgment and all of that. Um, And so remarkable stuff uh, to look at here. But um, when I was thinking about this gospel, I thought, well... I want to preach this last gospel uh, message, this, this deliver this message. And when I originally crafted this, I was focusing on responding to the Canadian law, C4, concerning, uh, concerning what they had uh, legislated there in terms of conversion therapy and the fact that the, uh, the Canadian church and Canadian people, the, you know, the country of Canada, cannot, uh, cannot... Uh, engage in any sort of conversion convert uh, therapy, meaning that you cannot try to convince somebody out of the homosexual lifestyle. If you do so, even if it is a parent to a child, that could be punishable with up to five years in prison. And so John MacArthur had called for pastors to stand in solidarity and to preach with the Canadian pastors directly against this legislation, which, you know, I did at the time. Now, I took a different angle because I think that what is needed is a, is a more comprehensive approach even to a subject like that. So instead of hitting a, a classic passage, let's say, on uh, homosexuality directly, instead what I d- decided to do is to kind of undergird all of that with a text that I think is indicative of the kind of culture that we're seeing that is developing right before us. And what's developing before us is a great deficiency regarding the doctrine of the creator, the doctrine of the creation, the doctrine of how the creator and creature relationship, creator and creature distinction go together. And so that was where my focus was. When you look at all that's happening in the world, whatever it is, LGBTQ, CRT, globalism, postmodernism, posthumanism, whatever, technology stuff, all of that stuff to me is ultimately owing to a breakdown in the creator-creature relationship and the creator-creature distinction. And and I think that this, you know, this failure in, in theology is 
plaguing the church on all sorts of level, all sorts of levels, whether it's the theological level within the church, academic and theological battles and 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 sort of um, uh, demarcations and lines that are being drawn in the sand of what position you take on certain aspects of the doctrine of God, for example, when you think about. Uh, the immutability of God, when you think about God and his essential being, and what is going on with different aspects of Christian theology that are calling for what is known as mutualism, uh, where God and man are going to share in some kind of third experience together, uh, you know, they share in some sort of mutual codependence, uh, some sort of mutual developmental kind of existence. Uh, God and man are entering into the same developing experience. No, that's all wrong, and that's all an attack on the immutable character or the the attribute of immutability. And so this doctrine of the creator-creature relation and distinction, very important, not just to deal with paganism, not just to deal with, you know, sexuality, not just to deal with uh, a, a pluralism and, 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 and postmodernism and stuff like that, but it's also important to deal with, um, with Christian theology. So I brought that out because I thought that was really important as I see that the journey ahead for the church, much of it is going to consist in this battle over the doctrine of God, the doctrine of immutability, uh, those kinds of things. This is what Van Til used to call correlativism, mutualism, those kinds of things. But ultimately, yes, when we think about what's happening in the world today, um, what this passage reminds us is that people are really forgetting that, that they have any sort of orientation to a creator, and that is what is creating ultimately any sort of pagan expression in the culture that we see, whatever it may be. It's that people today no longer see themselves in light of God, in light of their creator. Their identity is completely up for grabs because they no longer see themselves as being made in the image of their creator, being made in the image of God. So their image, as it were, their identity, as it were, can really be anything. And so what we see, if this passage is in fact talking about a time close to the end of the age, right before the return of Jesus, this angel may in fact be touching on something, that the world has become so fundamentally pagan um, that, that one of the most essential components of what is needed is going to be, um, you know, that we have to double down and in a sense we need to put a stake in the ground to say we have to ground everything in the doctrine of the creator, man needs to be reminded who made heaven and who made earth, who made the sea, who made the springs of water. I mean, it's something I asked uh, during the conference. I asked folks, when was the last time that the springs of water, the sea, the springs of water made it into your gospel presentation? I mean, perhaps we have talked about God as our creator, but typically evangelical presentations of the gospel are typically focused on sin, uh, and then we might we might go to the cross, and we talk about the work of Christ, and then we might call people to repentance and faith, and call them to believe in the gospel, and call them to, uh, you know, to turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ, but we hardly ever get to the doctrine of creation. Now, 
What's interesting about that is that when you go outside of the American Western culture, the American Western, uh, the American Western uh, uh, sort of mindset and worldview, okay, that has, like it or not, has sort of a, a background and a foundation and a history and a Judeo-Christian tradition, and you start going into the rest of the world, I would say the majority of the world, whether it's Asian, whether it's Indian, as in India, whether it's uh, African, uh, what you find, or, or you know, uh, you know, whether you're thinking about uh, Latin America and going deeper into South America, now you're going to start encountering cultures that don't pres- they don't presuppose the Christian worldview. Uh, they don't have, uh, you know, they don't have Billy Graham, <laughs> uh, you know, in their in their history as part of the American ethos. Okay, for for a lot of cultures, I mean, think about Hindu cultures, think about Asian cultures, think about think about think about uh, Islamic cultures, and think about uh, Buddhistic cultures. Okay, Eastern spirituality that is just completely swallowing the West at this time. You know, they do not share our basic creator and creature understanding, neither the relationship nor the distinction. For pagans, it's always a blurring of those lines. Um, And then let's see here. If we look a little bit further down in this text, it brings up another another subject here. If we look at, for example, verse 8. In this passage, verse 8, Revelation chapter uh, 14, verse 8, it says, Another angel sounded, uh, and he followed him, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, uh, she who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So right there and then, the second angel sounds, and the message that is delivered is to this this, um, Babylonian system, what I would say is the last system of man, which here is called Babylon, and then going from chapter 14, when you go in, for example, when you go into chapter 17 and 18, <clears throat> now you have a exposition of that concept, two chapters developed to Babylon. And when you look at that, Babylon is absolutely pagan. Now, this brings up an interesting thing. If the world is truly pagan here toward the end of the age, and Christianity has been uh, persecuted, and Christianity has been, uh, you know, overcome by this beast system, uh, which I think will be the case, uh, then it makes absolute sense that toward the end of the age, the key message is going to be to reorient man, or reorient and recalibrate, as it were, the spirituality of man, the the basic functioning worldview of an individual around their creator. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And also, there is a remarkable connection when you go from Revelation to the book of Acts. Now, that this is something that you find in G.K. Beale's uh, commentary on Revelation, that there is a direct line between Revelation 14 and Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 17, because there, once again, you have the Apostle Paul going into a uh, going into a region. He's going into Lystra, and then in Acts chapter 17, he's among the Athenians. But there you have the Apostle Paul going into a pagan culture that does not share his basic cosmology. They don't have his basic worldview. 
And therefore, what does the Apostle Paul do? Acts chapter 14, verse 15, he preaches to them to turn from idols to the living God, and almost identical to Revelation, he says, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And that, of course, is taking people back uh, to the book of Exodus. But remarkable, that connection there, uh, where once again, when you're in a culture of paganism and 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 all of that i mean you're looking at a culture that is that is detached from any basic fundamental any rudimentary aspects of the christian worldview and therefore they have dissented into full blown idolatry and we know what happens there based on romans chapter 1 when a person exchanges the glory of the creator for the glory of idols then what you have is paganism hedonism and ultimately barbarism. And that's what you had in the ancient cultures there uh, in Paul's time, and that is what you have in pagan cultures in our own time and throughout the history of the church and church history. Uh, The church has always gone into these pagan cultures to bring the light of the gospel to them, and many times it consists of that very thing of giving them a functioning cosmology from Scripture Paul does the same exact thing from Acts chapter 17. Again, he tells the Athenians that they need to now look to God instead of to idols. And again, uh, what does Paul do before he gets to the cross, before he gets to the resurrection, before he gets to repentance and faith? First, in Acts 17, Paul has to lay down an entire cosmology for these people. He has to tell them that first and foremost, God created everything, and that not only did God create everything, but God from one man. And so he he reintroduces them to a proper historical starting point, uh, a redemptive history, and develop everything there from a federal perspective, a covenantal perspective, really, because going back to the first man, he's going to show how that everyone is tethered to Adam, Adam, again, being not just the progenitor of the human race, but the representative of the human race uh, covenantally before God, and let's say in the covenant of works. So uh, Paul does that. Now, this is what's really interesting. Like right now, one of the things I'm really researching, developing, and writing about is this whole issue of transhumanism, futurism, globalism, you know, all of this um, post-humanism, all this technocratic kind of stuff. And what's interesting is that many of the leading transhumanist or globalist books, I'm talking the very, very uh, sort of the very, very uh, cutting edge, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the authors that everybody cites, when you go to some of these globalists, uh, Yake Adeli, Brief History of the World, when you go to Eric Schmidt, uh, New Age, uh, the New Digital Age, when you go to uh, when you go to Ray Kurzweil for his futurism books, what do they do? When you go to uh, Yuval Noah Harari, what does he do? He begins his entire presentation of posthumanism, transhumanism, and then posthumanism through what? Through giving the reader a uh, a representation of history. So uh, now, obviously, that is a secular history of humanities that's being developed there. But the, those authors are shaping the readers' minds based on history, and that's what we need to do in a sense when we encounter this kind of paganism. Is we have to take people back to the very beginning 
to, to, in, to situate them in a proper creator-creature relationship because without that, they are lost. And so you can talk to them about repentance. You can talk to them about the cross. You can talk to them about Christ and the resurrection. But unless you lay the foundation of, hey, this is who God is. This is who you are. This is where you came from. This is who made you. Then you can properly situate who Jesus is, why he's the remedy, what his cross work is all about, and why the resurrection is the capstone of that work, and why you need to repent and trust in him. Just beautiful. So I think when we're thinking about modern apologetics, modern evangelism, and as we see this this, you know, this antichrist system that's being built all around us and the kind of things that are being propagated, the kind of paganism that's being unleashed all over the world. I mean, I would really recommend that you pick up the writings of Peter Jones, pick up the other worldview to see just how extensive uh, Eastern uh, mysticism, paganism is, you know, how prevalent and how much or how many inroads uh, are being made into the West. Uh, I mean, it's just staggering. And so it's going to become fundamental again when we're dealing with a society like ours that sees itself fundamentally in a pagan, pantheistic way where they're part of the universe, the universe is all that there is, they're part of the universe, the universe is conscious, they're conscious, and they're part of this collective consciousness that's all pagan, that's all, you know, what used to be called New Age thought, which is ultimately rooted in idolatry, paganism, monism, uh, Eastern spirituality, that kind of stuff. And so when we lose that foundation, when we don't have that proper creator-creature distinction and relation, then what we have is you know, uh, just no shortage of perversions among humanity. And so you have the LGBTQ movement, the gender fluid movement, the transsexual movement. I mean, how do we get to how do we get to to reassignment surgeries for children in a modern culture like ours? How how do we get there? Well, we get there by uh, telling people that the world began in an alternative way in a way in which your identity is up for grabs. That's how we get there. And so I just believe so much that this doctrine of the creator is what needs to be preached now more than ever. And so I hope that um, if you go, you know, uh, uh, Answers in Genesis has their own streaming platforms. It's called Answers.tv. And if you go there... Um, that message will be found there. So I think it's the only way you can actually access that message. You'd have to go directly to answers.tv and try to uh, sign up for that subscription. So anyway, um, you know, this is something that um, I'm going to be developing more and more and more of this. And I just thought that this is absolutely essential for us to hear at a time like this. Now, this is what's amazing, too, is that you look at the last message of the angel, Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 9, it ends kind of like where you would think it would end, where the gospel begins to use familiar language. Because after he goes on talking about the fate of the unbelievers and those who take the mark of the beast and and, and, and all of that, um, then he goes into the perseverance of the saints, verse 12, uh, and those who keep his commandments, the commandments of God, and their 
faith in Jesus Christ. And so there you go. There's the language of the familiar gospel. But notice that uh, that that John is talking about that as he's describing as he's describing those who will persevere in in genuine salvation the saints but when he's describing the message of the angel to the unbelieving world it's a message uh directly leveled against paganism by emphasizing the doctrine of creation and uh the other thing here that's just amazing here is that what GK Beale uh, his commentary here is that when you look at some of these pagan contexts in the book of Acts, and then go from Acts 14 and 17, and then go to Revelation 14, he says the same outcome is anticipated in both passages, namely, that the vast majority of the culture will not repent. And he's saying that here in Revelation 14, the same outcome is to be anticipated, that the that here John and really the angel does not anticipate a positive response to the gospel of creation, which is, in a sense, you know, it could be discouraging to hear that, but at the same time, it just reminds us of how deep the paganism in our culture really is, and it reminds us of exactly what Scripture teaches. Narrow is the way, right? Difficult is the is the path that leads to, to eternal life, and very and what's it say? And few will be there that find it. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the vast majority of humanity is on the broad road, the idolatrous road, the road that leads to destruction. And I believe throughout the inter- the entire church age, it will be that way. And so, thankfully. Revelation gives us the encouragement, at least for us as believers, that our endurance, our perseverance is found here. It's found in a genuine uh, uh, obedience that is wrought in the Spirit's work as He produces saving faith within us, causing us to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I tell you what, uh, just the idea that the angel here, the third angel, leaves us with the idea of perseverance reminds us that, you know, this life, <laughs> especially if you're looking at Revelation, uh, I tell you what, it's going to be perseverance. It's going to demand perseverance. It's going to be war. It's going to be tribulation. It's going to in- require that we endure by faith. And that endurance, what is it going to look like? It's going to look like a life of obedient faith to God as the evidence of our saving faith in Christ. And so when I delivered this message, I left uh, the folks at the conference with that uh, with that encouraging message as well, and just telling them that, look, the Lord is going to keep you to the end, that as long as we trust, not in ourselves, but trust in Christ and trust in the message of Jesus, as long as we trust and we put our faith, you know, it's like if you look at this text, uh, the Apostle John is giving us the object of our faith, which is Christ. He is giving the means of our salvation, which is faith. He is giving us the nature of our salvation, which is what? what? Obedient perseverance. And so right there, we have a very, very familiar uh, sort of passage with familiar uh, a theology that you find in the rest of the New Testament. And so it is the salvation that we find uh, taught throughout uh, the New Testament by the apostles, a salvation 
that consists of our uh, union with Christ and our hope uh, consists entirely of him. And as our culture, therefore, becomes more and more pagan, as we see our culture give into all sorts of things, all the different, you know, uh, uh, all of the different uh, toxic things that are going on in the culture and the way that that metastasizes into, you know, all kinds of issues, whether it's, you know, the, the cancel culture, whether our culture becomes more socialist, communist, globalist, of course, see, the issue with globalism, you got to remember, is the issue with globalism is that it brings in pluralism. That's what you need to remember. Globalism is not just us keeping our eye on politics, okay? It's not just us, you know, trying to keep our eye on the political, on the political dimension, on the political realm. That's not right. It's that through globalism, the entire notion of uh, religious pluralism is sort of brought in from the side. And so we have to, we absolutely have to, um, we've got to pay attention to globalism because through globalism, they're, they're bringing in the message of Eastern spirituality because you got to remember, um, you know, uh, uh, Eastern spirituality is much more pliable <laughs> in on the world stage. Eastern spirituality is much more flexible. It's not as dogmatic. Uh, you know, there are, you know, Hindus believe in millions of different deities and gods. It leads to pragmatism. It leads to subjectivism, mysticism. But at the end of the day, I mean, it really is not giving you any sort of ultimate source of authority, morality, so that in a... Um, in a polytheistic society, let's say like in a Hindu society, it reduces, it really reduces to total nihilism and to atheism. Because if there are millions of deities, what that means is there's no supreme deity. In the end, there might be a force, an impersonal you know, force of some kind. Um, there may be the belief in Brahman. There's this overarching deity that nobody has access to. There's no, there, it's not a propositionally based religion. And so there you go. You have, therefore, a belief system of spirituality that can bend and move and accept everything. I mean, Peter Jones points out how in many of the Hindu religions, androgyny is everywhere. You have high priests of these weird Hindu sects that go intersex. They, the, the priests depict themselves as both male and female. And, uh, you know, nothing new, but the fact that Eastern spirituality is being an, imported into the West means now that what you're seeing in the entertainment industry, what you're seeing in, in the business models, it's all pagan. It's certainly not evangelical historic, biblical, and certainly not reformed Christianity. It is a amalgamation of pluralistic pagan religion that can suit the ends of whatever lifestyle people want to live, and that's exactly what you're seeing. It's interesting now that what you're seeing is Islam, in many ways, through technology and through what's going on on the economic level, and the way that technology is incorporating itself into tech, uh, the way that the, the, the tech 
and the, the transhumanist agenda is incorporating into the global economy, it's amazing how now you've got Islam that is, that is running with it, that they're accepting it. And so we'll have to do a whole episode just on that. But I just wanted to run through that with you guys, uh, give you a quick update. Um, a lot more stuff coming, redgracemedia.com. Make sure you go there. Make sure you share this uh, podcast. Uh, leave a review. Give me a rating. That would be great. And I'll keep you guys posted on everything that's going on here in the near future and a lot more content to come. So stick with us, guys. God bless you. And uh, see you next time. Christ in kingdom. <laughs>